straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.C. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Today, I am joined by Dr. Scott Williams from the University of North Carolina. We're talking about a new book he edited called Disability in Medieval Christian Philosophy and Theology. Scott gives us an overview of the book and some of the motivations for putting together this volume. Then we chat about a series of questions related to personhood and disability. What are some of the different conceptions of personhood that we see throughout history? Do certain conceptions of personhood lead towards ableism? Can medieval understandings of personhood help us better promote the moral status of disabled individuals? If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Scott and I talking about disability and medieval theology. Enjoy. So, so, Scott, you recently published an edited book called Disability in Medieval Christian Philosophy and Theology. What was the motivation for this research project? Well, there are a few. Um, so I need to give a personal autobiography here. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I studied under Richard Cross, and his uh, spouse uh, is Asaka Joshua, and she's also a professor um, in English. And so she uh, started introducing Richard and I to disability studies because she had been working on it in the context of uh, English literature. And so I had been diabetic since I was 19. And so she started talking about me using the concept of disability and impairment. And so I became really interested in this idea of thinking about disability and how it might apply to me because I never really thought it applied to me. I just sort of lived with having diabetes since I was 19. And then what soon followed after that was that Richard started publishing a few articles using concerns from philosophy of disability and theology of disability and saying something interesting with Dun Scotus and Thomas Aquinas on different topics. So that really sort of inspired me to think about this intersection between disability and medieval philosophy and theology. And then there's another part that sort of retrospectively realized uh, shaped my interest, which was my mom's work in what's called special education out in California. Mm-hmm. And so I'd heard lots of stories uh, from her about what was involved in teaching individuals with different needs than typical students. And that really kind of shaped my affective disposition towards thinking about disability, because as I came to read more disability um, literature, there's both like the intellectual presuppositions you have that you bring with you to reading those things, uh, but also your uh, affective disposition, sort of uh, if certain things make you feel really uncomfortable or if certain things make you feel really excited or inspired. So I think those those three things, learning about disability studies, uh, my own experience of diabetes, and then reflecting back on my own past and what it was like. And then I started identifying with, oh, right, yeah, I did feel this certain kind of difference from other normal people when I had diabetes. I mean, it's like, very common everyday kinds of experiences that I had. Like, can I go out to eat with my friends? Like, if I need to take insulin, how do I do that? Mm-hmm. How do I explain this to my friends? I had to teach my friends what I was now dealing with. I had to learn from medical doctors what my condition was. I had to learn how to um, manage and treat diabetes. Um, and then through the course of my life, living in California for a while, and then living in Illinois, and then in uh, Oxford, England for my my DPhil, 
I had to sort of survive different medical systems and negotiate my condition and relationship to costs of medicine, access to treatment, and all kinds of things like that. So I had some kind of personal acquaintance with the kinds of issues that are discussed in a lot of philosophy of disability. So that helped me to be more open to arguments and things like that. Um, that helped me, I think, in editing this book and thinking about some of the complexities involved in disability in relation to philosophical claims or theological claims. So one of the things I, I found interesting about the book was it covers like a wide range of topics in philosophy and theology. And I, like I would imagine like different people listening, they're going to be really surprised to hear that medieval thinkers would have anything maybe positive to contribute to a discussion on disability. Because uh, like, I mean, often people are like, what are we living in the Middle Ages? You know, so like, maybe you could uh, give us some examples of some of the medieval contributions to disability, like something to kind of help people understand why we should listen to medieval thinkers on this topic. What's some of the stuff that comes up in the book? In the introduction to the book, I divide all the chapters into three parts. And so the first part is called theoretical frameworks, uh, which deals with defining what the term disability might mean and debates about that. The second part of the book is called disability in this life, because medieval theologians believed that if we're going to think about human nature, we need to think about it in the state of innocence before the fall, and then human nature after the fall, and then human nature in the intermediate state. So after death, but before the resurrection, and then also thinking about human nature and the resurrection, whether it be for the blessed in heaven or the damned in hell. And then likewise, thinking about the beatific vision. So the book is sort of covers those, um, that range. And then there's another way to think about the, the chapters in terms of their content. One way is, is to think about how they relate to uh, beliefs, texts, arguments, practices in the ancient world to relation from medieval authors to the ancient heritage, which in this text is largely represented by Aristotle or Galen. And then there's also the relation between medieval philosophers and different views that medieval philosophers and theologians had on different topics. Um, and then the third way is the relation between medieval texts in uh, relation to modern authors or contemporary authors. And so why medieval? Well, they have a lot of interesting things to say that might surprise us that can either be used to help us today think again through questions in ethics or identity or all kinds of medical conditions or uh, views about disabled human beings. So sometimes we can learn about new things that might help us in contemporary reflection. But of course, there's also the interest in the history of disability. So one of the authors, Goya Frost, talks about how it's important for each of us to sort of understand what our history might be and how we've been thought about in the past. And so she argues that the, the part of the history that she focuses on, which is on the congenital disabilities, people today or human beings today with congenital disabilities probably have an interest in knowing how they or that they were theorized about in the past. Mm -hmm. um, how are they thought about and how does that affect us today and the presuppositions that we have. Because if you know anything about the history of philosophy, you know that concepts have histories, uh, language has histories, and it's good to know those things because sometimes they might help you to be better suited for engaging with those, using those, or discarding those ideas, maybe because of the history that you learn about. So the book overall is trying to enrich your understanding of the history of thinking about disability from a, a lot of different topic areas. So as I mentioned, one of the chapters is on congenital disabilities, and that focuses on 
Albert the Great and how his views of the causes of congenital disabilities differs from Aristotle's understanding of the causes of congenital disabilities. And what he says there really kind of, in some ways, is very surprising in an Aristotelian world because he pushes back against a lot of what Aristotle says about the causes of congenital disabilities. And for those who don't know, Aristotle uh, blames the woman's contribution to the fetus for all uh, (laughs) deformities and defects. And Albert disagrees with that. Uh, Gloria reports and describes how Albert thinks there are a lot of cases in which the male contribution is the cause or the source for the defect or the disability. Um, Another area that might interest people is the history of thinking about rationality in disability studies. There's a lot of focus on cognitive disability, intellectual disability. So the word rational is oftentimes thrown around and used in a lot of different kinds of ways. And so one of the chapters focuses on the history of what's called natural slaves from Aristotle's politics mm-hmm. and how rationality intersects with uh, whatever is thought to be a, a natural slave. And then how the reception history of natural slavery was used in the context of Spanish colonialism. And so there the theoretical debates had direct political impact on the way in which the Spanish king legislated and either permitted or prevented uh, conquistadors from doing the horrific acts in the Americas. And so there's a very important history that needs to be understood there for thinking about rationality. And in that context, it shows us that Thomas Aquinas's discussion of human rationality can be used to support a pro-disability position, despite what many Thomists might be might think. There's some surprising twists there. Hmm. And then, of course, there's a there's a chapter on gender and disability and the ways in which, right, in the Aristotelian way of thinking, right, males, adult males who are morally and intellectually virtuous are paradigm human beings and females are defective right. humans, right? Right? Right. Uh, right. And so one of the <laughs> yeah. chapters by uh, Christina Van Dyke shows medieval resistance to that way of thinking and uses, uh, or she draws our attention to beliefs and meditation and thinking about the incarnate Christ and the suffering of Christ in connection to motherhood as a way of showing that medieval mystics really do push back strongly against um, this Aristotelian value judgment system. So there's a lot of surprising things in there. And you see some history of art too that connects with this in terms of the theological theorizing and prayers and things like that. Stuff about the afterlife. There's a chapter about disabilities in heaven and hell, right? So medieval authors might surprisingly say, yeah, there are what today we'd call defects for the resurrected in heaven. And these things are awesome from the medieval perspective. Like it's awesome to have certain disabilities. And so this would be what we'd call a good difference view of disability. But then of course, classics also say things like there are some disabilities that are really bad. And those are the ones that the damned in hell will have, right? (laughs) So perhaps one thing that's surprising about that is that the medieval authors that are discussed don't say that disability is just a good difference or just a mere difference or just a bad difference. Right. They're more pluralist uh, about that kind of thing. Because some of the debates in contemporary literature is, is a disability a good difference, mere difference, or bad difference? And medieval will say, well, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the context and things like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So those, that's sort of a range of the kinds of things we talk about. And my chapter had to do with personhood, which I think we'll talk about later. Yeah. So that's so, yeah. So the reason I wanted to ask that question was just so people could, who are listening can really see like, there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. And one of the things I really appreciate about when I was reading through the book was uh, kind of some of the stuff you hit on already, which is seeing all these different medieval thinkers disagree so much with the Aristotelian science that, that's being assumed in their time period and going, hang on, this doesn't quite make sense. We have to push back here. And then just seeing the disagreements too amongst uh, the medieval thinkers. It, in my mind, it just shed a lot of light on all sorts of contemporary debates that are happening now. And it really forced me to rethink, like, you know, what were the views that the people in the past held? Because I'm like, eh, they probably didn't think very highly of this issue or this issue. But like, oh, and actually, they they disagreed on all sorts of stuff going on here. So it, it, I think it forces um, more intellectual honesty, I guess, in reassessing what's going on there. So I want to get into your chapter in the book, though. So you have a chapter on personhood, ethics, and disability. And so in your paper, you're, you're trying to figure out, like, you know, which views of personhood are going to grant the moral status of personhood to disabled individuals. And so you argue that medieval views of personhood, they're to be preferred over, like, some modern views. So let's just start with some modern views of personhood. Can you give me an example of a modern view of sure. personhood? I'll start with what I take to be one of the more what I'll call extreme views, where it builds a lot of things into it. And that's a view that's articulated by Marianne Warren. Mm -hmm. So in my chapter, I, I quote her five different conditions for personhood. And so it involves things like being self-conscious, being able to communicate to others, on a wide variety of topics that are unexpected, being able to have concepts of yourself, like what am I? She includes things like you need to have a concept of your own race. You need to be able to engage in complex reasoning. Um, you need to have self-motivated activity. You deliberate about something and then you go achieve that on the basis of your own reasoning. So consciousness, reasoning, self-motivated activity, capacity to communicate in the presence of self-concepts, like all of those things she takes to be uh, required for personhood. And to me, more stunningly, she claims that these are all obvious or self-evident for what a person is. Mm -hmm. And so that strike, it struck me as really odd to say that it's obvious because knowing something about the history of theorizing about personhood, I'd say, well, it's not obvious at all. <laughs> right. There were lots of debates about this for hundreds and hundreds of years. So so that's sort of an extreme view. And then you could say less extreme views would just be to say something like a modern person is somebody who's self-conscious and volu makes voluntary decisions, which is more open-ended. Mm -hmm. And then there might be maybe the least extreme view of the modern ones. And I talk about this in some of my other writings that are on the Trinity, which is more technical metaphysics stuff. And there I say that modern views typically share the assumption that intellectual acts and volitional acts are metaphysically incommunicable. And that's a sort of a technical locution in medieval mm. uh, theology. But there you just get a, a range of views from like lots of different kinds of cognitive achievements, uh, individual and social, to just being self-conscious voluntary agent, to just having certain metaphysical facts about one's intellectual acts and volitional acts. I think those are all modern views of personhood. Okay, so so that's like this, this sort of modern views. Now, in the paper, you try to argue that this, these modern views of personhood, like they're ableist, and and so you say that a view is ableist if it can be used to support the conclusion that disabled human beings have some sort of inferior moral status, uh, and so that's 
you know, in my in my mind, that's a really bad thing. I, and I'd want to avoid that. If, if my view of personhood entailed uh, that, like my sister had an inferior moral status, I would be like, okay, let's 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 revise uh, our views of, of personhood here. So, why do you think that this modern view of personhood is ableist? So, in the chapter, I I sort of give a reductio argument. Um, so, just assume a modern concept of personhood, and then also assume that that concept of personhood is the sole basis for having equal moral status, and then apply that to the individuals in question. And if some individuals aren't persons, then they don't have equal moral status. And those who do meet that set of conditions, you know, they do have moral status. So just by virtue of the way you define person, you're excluding individuals, a vast array of individuals from moral status. I think, I think that's just obviously false and morally repulsive. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important, as some contemporary philosophers of disability say, like Elizabeth Barnes, that it's important to engage with the arguments and reasons of the opponents that you take to be very harmful. And because we need to engage with these in order to try to either persuade people that the views you find morally reprehensible aren't good arguments. And so even if you don't persuade the the Peter Singers of the world, you can persuade people who read Peter Singer. Exactly, yeah. And then in another article, another book chapter on personhood that I give in the book called The Lost Sheep and the Philosophy of Religion, I give two arguments. One I call the moral shift argument, uh, which is sort of a parody of the G.E. Moore shift. Oh, right. Nice. And then uh, another argument called the argument against exclusive moral personhood. And I'll... I'll read the moral shift argument. Um, it has two premises uh, and a conclusion. So the first premise says this. If Warren's concept of moral personhood is correct, then profoundly cognitively disabled human beings are not equal members of the moral community. But profoundly cognitively disabled human beings are equal members of the moral community. Therefore, Warren's concept of moral personhood is not correct. Right. And so, of course, it's the second premise that people might disagree about. Some philosophers in sort of analytic philosophy of disability have argued that cognitively disabled human beings have lesser moral value. Uh, and so they would claim that premise two is false. And so I go on in that chapter to say that um, I can give you another argument to show that you would be irrational for doing that. Um, and then I use the history of personhood to try to establish that. And the, the basic idea is what you associate with personhood needs to have good reasons for what that association is. And if moral status hinges on that association that you make, you need to have really good reasons for what that association is. In many cases, like with racism and sexism, there aren't good reasons for the association, right? So in the racist case, you've got the white supremacist who exclusively associates being white with being what, morally upright, intelligent, and kind, or something like that, and you exclusively associate those two things together, and then we would say, well, why that exclusive association doesn't make any sense. I can think of millions of counterexamples to that. Mm -hmm. And the white racist would say, or the supremacist would say, but that's just the way it is, right? So, <laughs> Right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right, that's, that's just my, and in some language say, well, that's just my preference. They're like, well, you need to give me a good reason for that exclusive association. You don't have any good mm -hmm. reasons. In fact, there are a lot of bad reasons for that exclusive association. So I think there's something structurally similar to modern concepts of personhood, making exclusive associations with moral status and whatever they think personhood requires. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I think what's perplexing about personhood 
is that there are a number of different things you're trying to answer and discuss when you're talking about it. Right. Right. One might be legal considerations, right? Personal identity through time. Others might be like moral responsibility questions, right? Like moral agency. And so some people might try to use a concept of personhood to answer all of those things. And to me, that just seems it's a Herculean task. Yeah, it is a really big one when I think about it. Because like my like metaphysical intuitions about personhood uh, are a very particular way. And when I look at some legal concepts of personhood that, so for instance, that allow like a corporation to be a person, I'm like, no, that's not a person. Like the, the corporation just can't be. Um, and I'm like, I guess legal, if you want to do that, like, I don't know, I'm not a law expert. I'm not writing these laws. Like you must have some reasons or something for it. I hope they're good ones. Cause I don't know enough, a lot of, to understand if you're, if you're being good uh, and creating these sort of things, but yeah, it seems like these are different tasks. Uh, and if I, don't have it clear in my mind what what kind of task I'm up to that it seems like I might be doomed for failure. Yeah. So so yeah okay so like that's one like big problem here yeah yeah and then of course there's the the history in theology um, at least mm-hmm. the research I've done you know I'm a follower so I'm happy to be proven wrong is that personhood rises to philosophical significance because of Christians' belief in the Trinity and the Incarnation which required them to do a lot of technical thinking in order to try to at least articulate to themselves and to at least show the coherence of their beliefs, how it is you can have uh, one God and three, quote, persons mm-hmm. who are this God. And then uh, in the case of Jesus Christ, um, he's one person uh, existing in uh, divine nature and a human nature. I'm like, well, how does that work, right? What is person there? And so, you know, for over a thousand years, there's a lot of theological technical work on those questions. And then, of course, in the history of philosophy and law, personhood, you know, overlaps with that. And so you have these trajectories through history and thinking about personhood, and it's being used as an explanance for a different explananda, mm-hmm. right? So it can be used to try to give an explanation or at least a clarification of the Trinity or the incarnation. It can be used in legal contexts, right? Some of the work I've done looks at Roman law, um, and I'll talk about that uh, when we get to Boethius, right? Because per- person or persona is a is a term uh, in Roman law, um, and so there's a legal part to it. And so personhood historically is very complicated. And so when I have students who say, "Well, that's just not a person," and I usually say, "Well, tell me what you mean by a person, and where did you learn that?" Right. Now I'll give you some examples of persons that is very different from what your intuition is. And then I point out like the word intuition rose to prominence in the 1960s. <laughs> and so <laughs> individuals start saying like, wait a minute, this is hard. I'm not sure what the right answer is. Like, okay, so let's do some historical investigation. Right. See, see what it is we're trying to explain when we talk about personhood. So let me see if I can like follow the basic strategy here. So when you're wanting to say, okay, this modern view of persons, it seems like it entails some kind of ableism because it says that people with disabilities don't have the same moral status because they don't have this, they don't meet the criteria for personhood. And so part of the strategy is to just go, well, like that just seems off. I just, I find that very false and and morally repugnant. So I'm just going to, do a Morian shift on you uh, and just reject like, you know, uh, one of the things you want to want to claim is, is the case. But then another part of it is to go, well, what were your reasons for saying that this was the right view of personhood and the right view of moral status? And, and the reason is, well, it's just really obvious. And you're like, well, haha, that's obvious to who? Because there's this massive history of everyone disagreeing with everyone else 
on everything related to what it means to be a person. So the obviousness, ooh, it's just not there. So like, like this is this kind of like in a nutshell, sort of like the the strategy here. Yeah. So I mean, obviousness can be a psychological phenomenon right. that we experience, and so it's so I'm I'm requesting more reasons or a basis for why that association versus another. I mean, if you look at, if you look at debates about personhood in contemporary context, right? Typically people go to psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, what kinds of cognitive activities are engaged in and and then we just decide, well, that's a person. Well, that one's not a person. Like, well, why? What makes the decide one versus another, right? Um, and I remember years ago when I was in graduate school, Marilyn Adams had said in a class that, yeah, personhood, it's a nominal kind, right? It's just, <laughs> it's not a real thing out there. It's a nominal kind, at least according to people like Occam, right? Um, at least that's what my memory yeah. of, of it was. It's been a while since I read Occam on that topic. Uh, but when, once you think of it that way, then you start to think about the history of personhood. And if you think of your understanding, like, what am I? If your answer is, I am a person, you can ask yourself, what am I saying when I say that? What am I doing when I do that? Right. Yeah. I mean, any, if you take a just general course in history of philosophy or history of ethics, you think, oh, you know, Kant played a really big role in saying there's persons and there are things. Persons have moral status, mm-hmm. right? They're an end in themselves and things are only useful. And then when you look at like ancient Roman law, you learn that, oh, actually, they use the word person for free human beings and also for enslaved human beings. But the enslaved human beings also counted as things Mm -hmm. in the context of law. So slaves in the Roman context were persons and things. But Kant says it's an exclusive disjunction. Like, so wait, (laughs) how should I think through this? Right. It gets complicated. So let's, okay, so if we want to say that these uh, modern views, if if they lead to ableism, uh, so, okay, that seems quite bad. So the other options, uh, according to to you, at least in, in, the, in the paper that we're looking at, is, well, let's look at some medieval options. They seem better in your mind. So let's, let's, and, and so like, hang on. Uh, so you divide, in your paper, you divide your discussion on, on medieval views into two sorts of families. So you say there's what you call Byzantine views and Boethian views. So let's just start with the Byzantine account of personhood. So just explain to me, like, you know, give me an example of what a Byzantine view of personhood would be. So the context is really important here. The context is Christian theologians in the 300s, up to say 700s, thinking about the Trinity and the incarnation. And so that's the thing they're, they're talking about. That's the thing they're trying to give an account of, or at least clarification of. And so what gets going, the Byzantine way of thinking about prosopon or hypostasis is that's an individual of some kind, and every individual is of some kind. So a hypostasis or a prosopon is just an individual of some nature. And so you see this borne out uh, in the reception history of the Cap- so the Cappadocian theologians like Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of Caesarea really get this going, and a lot of people who disagree later all trace back to the Cappadocian theologians as authorities on this topic. So usually in contemporary discourse, their view is reported as saying indiv- uh, persons are individuals of some nature. So you get a contrast between universals and mm-hmm. individuals. To be more historically sensitive, I think it's probably more helpful to say that they distinguish between what's common and what's not common. Um, because if you use the term universal, 
a bunch of analytic philosophers say, oh, hey, I know about universals right. and the problem of universals. <laughs> and then I'm going to import everything I learned about that in graduate school onto these, uh, these ancient uh, theologians. Right. Now, what you learned, yeah, but what you learned about universals in particular might be useful in certain ways, but it might prevent you from understanding what people like Gregory of Nyssa and other uh, Greek-speaking theologians were saying about um, personhood, right, the English word personhood, uh, the Greeks used prosopon or hypostasis. One of the things that I found in research about this was in the ecumenical councils, uh, there was sort of first, like the first seven ecumenical councils, the term prosopon and the term hypostasis are used as synonyms in all of the councils from the second to the seventh mm-hmm. council. But if you look at the way that those two terms were used prior to Christian theorizing about them, they weren't the same term, right? Prosopon was usually the term used for the masks in uh, theaters. Uh, hypostasis usually was thought of as just like the metaphysical subject or that underlies something. And so what the um, theologians did was to try to develop a notion of an individual using those terms. The history is rather complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. In the theological discussions, but what I find in the Greek-speaking theologians and some of Lat- the Latin-speaking theologians, excluding Boethius and people influenced by Boethius, typically say a person or is just an individual of some nature. And one of the authors that I found in doing some research on this was a Latin author who's a contemporary of Boethius named John Maxentius. And he is what they call a Scythian monk. Uh, so he's a monk uh, who is really engaged in debates about the incarnation in the late 400s, early 500s. And uh, in his some of his writings, when he describes what a persona is, he's writing in Latin, he says a persona is what's individual and nature or natura is what is common, the common material out of which individuals right, um, are. But he's a Latin author who's contemporary with Boethius. And then when we get to Boethius, we'll see that he gives a different analysis of what persona is. So in, in my chapter, I, I talk about some of the reasons that Boethius might have for why he does what he does. So the Byzantine view is just, an, a person is just an individual of some nature, of any individual, of any nature, right? Mm-hmm. So John of Damascus later says, you know, olive trees are persons right. or hypostasis or persona. Olives are, right? The scope is really, really wide. It's very wide, yeah. Yeah, profoundly wide, right? So it's just very different than what we think about as contemporary American speakers when we hear the term person. Right. So I want to get to that issue in a minute. But before that, so I want to ask, like, how does this Byzantine view of personhood avoid the charge of ableism? Well, if you think there are individuals, metaphysically speaking, of any kind, then everybody's a person, right. or any, every individual is a person, right? So I think there's a passage, one of my colleagues, Bo Branson, said there was a passage of some early theologian who even said a piece of charcoal is a prosopon or a hypostasis. So, piece of, so even an inanimate object counts as a person, or right, if it's an individual of a nature. So it could be inanimate, animate, you know, humans, angels, God, mm-hmm. right? This sort of setup can work. So it's not ableist because just by the concept, if you assume the concept mm-hmm. itself of an individual of some nature, you're not going to be able to exclude some individuals from the moral community. You just need to add extra claims to it if you're going to exclude some individuals from the moral community. Right. So nothing on the basis of this understanding of personhood would lead me to exclude 
well, anyone or anything from the moral community. Right. So you couldn't, so you couldn't get ableism up and running right. um, just purely on what it means to be a person. So, so now I want to get into like a worry though that I have about this, because if, I mean, if absolutely everything counts as a person, like a piece of chalk uh, or charcoal, an olive tree, like these sorts of things, I, I, this seems overly permissive to me. And that just sounds really counterintuitive. So, because I feel like whatever my concept of person should be, like it really should distinguish me from like an olive tree or from an ox or something like that. So, how do you think like a Byzantine view can handle like a complaint like this? Like that's just too permissive, too just counterintuitive. Uh, I guess it depends on which theologian and how rhetorically <laughs> sophisticated they might get. Sure. And and condemning your supposed intuition. Yeah. Well, I guess the question would be. Well, if we're talking about what you are, you need to add a bunch more than hypostasis mm-hmm. or prosopon. You need to say more about you. What, 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 what's your nature? Right? Oh, you're a human. Right? Okay, so let's talk about the kinds of powers that come along with being human or an individual of a human nature. And so now we've left theorizing about what a person is, and now we're theorizing about what human is. Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you want to know what you are, you're not going to get a good answer by saying, I'm a person. It's not enough information, not much at all um, right? about what you are. So they would say, you need to stop talking about person if you want to know what you are, and you need to start talking about human, whatever human is. Okay, so I'd have to bring some other concept in to distinguish me from an olive tree or from, a, from, a, from an ox or something. And that seems fine because it does seem to me like, well, one thing that's different between me and an olive tree is I'm a human, and that's an olive tree. And this is the, yeah, then you can start talking about what is the nature of a human. Right. Okay. So, okay. So I, it seems like there's a lot more nuance they could, they could bring into the story, like other metaphysical things they can bring into the story to be like, you're clearly different from an olive tree. So this is not, this is not a worry. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, right, when Byzantines are talking about persopon or hypostasis, Typically, right, it's about the Trinity or the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. They're not talking about you. Right. There might be implications about what they say about other individuals. Um, and there are, and they do talk about those kinds of things. But the kinds of concerns and the things that are aimed to be explained or clarified is not, it's not an answer to the question, what am I? It's doing a different kind of work, right? So it's like, I don't know, putting a round peg in a square hole or something like that. Right. It's like, no, you need different tools to answer your question. Yeah. So, which I think in general is a, is a good thing to keep in mind when you're looking at any historical thinkers, what kind of questions are they trying to address versus what kind of questions am I trying to address? Yeah, exactly. And so in this case, the questions that I have about personhood are not the kind of questions they're asking about personhood. I'm asking for something very different. Okay. So let's get into this other medieval view though. So you mentioned Boethius. Uh, and so you think there's this Boethian view of personhood. So tell me a bit about the Boethian view of personhood. Sure. Boethius famously defines a person as an individual substance of a rational nature. This was commented on and very well known in the Latin theology in the medieval period. And so most all theologians who were writing in Latin just took that as an authoritative statement that that's just what we mean by persona. But once you compare it with the Byzantine view and you compare it with the more modern contemporary views, you start to see Boethius looks kind of, well, he's different, right? He adds in rationality into the definition Mm -hmm. of what a person is. And so the question is, or two questions, like what is rationality and why does he add it to the definition? And I say add it to the definition because the Byzantine theologians, the Greek-speaking theologians and Latin-speaking theologians like John Maxentius did not include it in the definition of persona. Right, okay. So why does Boethius insert it into it or add it onto it? Mm-hmm. He may 
have known that he added onto it, or he may not have known that he added it onto it. But historically, it's an additional uh, part of the conjunction, um, adding in rationality. So in my chapter, I try to find some reasons that Boethius might have had for thinking he needed to include rationality in the definition of person. And again, I should mention the theological context. Boethius gives his definition of person in trying to give an account of the incarnation, right. how Jesus is one person uh, in and of two natures. And so his his definition is aimed for answering that question. If we think about what does he mean by rational nature, at bottom, I think what he means is just rational powers. In my chapter, I talk about how he doesn't say that we predicate persona of what ancient philosophers call accidents or contingent properties of an individual. So like my thinking about cats right now would be contingent property of me or an accident that exists in me, maybe as an action or a quality. With um, this says we predicate persona of substance, not of accidents. And so what that means is that I would count as a person just in virtue of being an individual substance of a rational nature, not in virtue of things that I get added on to me, like occurrent thoughts or new content stored in my mind or something like that through education or habituation. Mm -hmm. So I think Boethius is typically understood to say rational nature means rational power. Whether or not that's exercised or not doesn't determine whether you're a person, right? So you'd be a person whether or not you ever exercise the power. Now, because statistically, in most cases, human beings exercise that power in some way. Right. We could say a lot more about that, but I think uh, it's sort of safe that there's at least one kind of cognitive act that I mean, many human beings have in the course of their life. Uh, but Boethius doesn't think you need the accidents to give you the status of personhood. You just need to have the right kind of nature. And so Boethius says, well, what kinds of entities are persons? Or what kinds of natures could qualify one for being a person? Well, he says, well, you've got humans, angels, and God. Those are the three things. And so typically, some historians of theology and philosophy say, personhood is whatever God, angels, and humans share mm-hmm. in common. Or something like yeah. that, right? And so Boethius kind of sets it up that way. Historically, we can ask why, why that setup, uh, why exclude some non-human animals from that, and then we could... Lots of discussions about um, animal animal rationality, sure, which was discussed in the Greek philosophical tradition by Porphyry. Uh, Boethius knew Porphyry has this really interesting text called "On the Abstinence from Killing Animals," and there he argues that rationality comes in degrees, and humans just have more of it than non-humans. But that doesn't mean birds don't have rationality. And mm. Porphyry says things like. You know, just because I can't understand some birds talking to each other doesn't mean they aren't talking to each other. Right. Um, they're just really foreign to us. They're, they have a completely different culture, language than us. You know, far be it from us to say they, they don't communicate and aren't don't participate in logos. Um, so, um, but Boethius and a lot of people following him say, no, only humans, angels, or God could uh, count as persons. And then also in the chapter, I try to find out some other reasons for why Boethius might have included rationality in his definition of persona. And there I say, well, Boethius says, uh, we don't say, we don't predicate persona of uh, animals or, or horses, for example. We don't do that. And so I take that to be that Boethius is looking for examples uh, in his linguistic community for when we use persona and when we right, don't. Okay. When we use persona of humans, we don't use it of animals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then another context is Roman law, right? Boethius was sort of, I don't know, second or third in charge of the uh, kingdom of Italy under Theodoric. So he knew Roman law pretty well, at least that's very plausible. Yeah, um, extremely plausible. And in Roman law, right, it begins with the category of uh, homo vel persona, right? Humans or persons. Mm-hmm. And then they divide humans or persons into free humans or persons and uh, enslaved humans. Um, so there in Roman law, uh, persona and homo, or for human, are used synonymously with each other. So if Boethius takes being an individual human is sufficient to count as being a person, right, then that's a good reason for me to include rationality because humans are defined as the mortal rational animal. So it seems like rationality needs to go in there. And so Boethius puts it in there. And what's so surprising to me when I look or survey different ancient theologians mm-hmm. is that you don't find rationality put into the definition of hypostasis or prosopon among Greek authors, and you don't find it among Latin authors like John Maxentius um, of the Scythian monks who are influential in the fifth ecumenical council. So Boethius is really making a unique claim here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So part of theological history is asking which theological text did Boethius have access to? Did he know of Gregory of Nyssa? Did he know of any of the Cappadocian theologians? He certainly knew of Latin Catholic theology. He he quotes and references Leo the Great, um, Leo's Tome, Mm-hmm. where Leo says that Christ is an individual person of and in human nature, right? The two prepositions there were really important uh, right. at the time for the theological disputes. Uh, so Boethius references that uh, in his tome, or sorry, in Boethius's text. And then there are other things that I didn't mention in this, though I have learned and teach in my medieval classes, which is that it seems to me that Boethius being a political actor in Rome at a time when the Roman Empire split into the, the kingdom of Italy under Theodoric, who's an Arian Christian, and then Justin, who is the uncle of Justinian in the Byzantine and Constantinople. And so what happens is the Eastern Empire wants to reunite with the Western, right. but we have Arian Christians and Byzantine Christians yeah. ruling these different parts of the former Roman Empire. And so one of the stories is that either Justin or Justinian starts to persecute Arians in Constantinople in order to piss off Theodoric mm-hmm. so that Theodoric gets angry at the Catholic Christians. And then if Theodoric gets angry at the Catholic Christians, then he's going to want to get rid of people like Boethius who work for him. Mm-hmm. Boethius is a Catholic Christian. And if he gets rid of those people, he's getting rid of all of the people who are really good at carrying out the civil obligations in the legal courts in Rome. So basically if the if Justinian or Justin can get Theodoric to distrust and hate the Catholics, then he'll want to get rid of the people that he needs to rule his kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so we know historically that Theodoric becomes suspicious of Boethius committing treason, and then he is right. exiled, right? He writes his Constellation of Philosophy while in prison, and then he's beheaded. Yeah. And so when I was reading Boethius's text on the Incarnation, and I was attentive to the debates going on in the Greek-speaking world, it, it appeared to me that Boethius' position is midway between the Chalcedonian position mm-hmm. and the Miaphysite position, right? Okay. Um, which require a whole other discussion. And if that's sure. the case, then it looks like from a political perspe- perspective, Boethius is trying to unify discord between people in the Byzantine Empire, the Miaphysites, or like the Syrians uh, and the Ethiopians, 
uh, with the people in Constantinople. So Boethus is trying to unify theologically those disparate political groups, and that could be used as a political uh, front against the um, right the kingdom in Italy. And so one of the things I find fascinating about this is the political context of these theological disputes, right? So yeah. marking out a theological position also marked you out politically. Right. And, and so I think Boethius' social and political context can at least begin to help us understand why he includes rationality in his definition of person. And then it's just a big open question. Well, what is rationality? You know, and today in contemporary philosophy, philosophers, you know, just practical rationality, you yeah. know, epistemic ration, you know, all these ways to use rationality. And then if you say a person is a rational thing, and you say, well, which kind of rationality? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just like, uh, as I say, a wild goose chase. You just right. sort of, <laughs> the way that I think of it is just, you just make up stuff. You're like, yeah, that's the way we think person should go. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> it serves some interests. So in some way, I think it's kind of random. And I suspect that's the way the Byzantines would think about it. Like, you're just talking about human nature, Mm -hmm. you know, get off your high horse about personhood. Yeah, right. I can see this. Okay. So so the Boethian definition in a nutshell is just like a substance of a rational nature or something like that, right? Individual substance of a rational nature. An individual substance, right. Yeah, yeah. So so, so I've been at various conferences and then sometimes I'll see this in print too. People will just say, well, that view, because it's got rationality built into it, like that just, that just leads to ableism. Uh, and so that's why I found like your paper quite interesting. Cause you're like, no, no, it doesn't. So how, so help me out here. Like, how do you think the Boethian view can avoid the charge of ableism? So if we understand Boethius to say that rational nature is a power mm-hmm. or a set of powers, intellect and will, and rationality there does not require uh, any occurrent acts or acquired dispositions, acquired habits, then you would count as a person just by virtue of being an individual human. That's it, right? It doesn't depend on any achievements at all on your part or your social context part for counting as a person. But I think a reason why today there's the worry about um, Boethius' definition supporting ableism is because of the history of development of rationality. Right. Uh, so one of the chapters in the book is about, uh, it's by Miguel Romero. Uh, it's a fascinating chapter, sort of narrating a history of natural slavery and it's how it gets used in the Spanish colonial context in the 16th century um, by Spanish theologians in Spain, right in Spain. And some of the theologians and lawyers said that rational is equivalent to the use of reason. And the use of reason in this context, meaning you can compose sentences, you can develop arguments, and you can make uh, intellectual judgments about something. And so being rational means you use reason. And so Guinness Sepulveda argues that all of the American Indians, all of the American Indians, all the human beings on both of the American continents don't have the use of reason. So they're not really human. So we can enslave them, right? That's roughly mm-hmm. who he advocates for in defense of the conquistador cause. And Bartolome de las Casas say, you couldn't be more wrong. Um, I have lots of personal experience of American Indians who clearly show the use of reason. So they have human dignity and all of the human uh, legal rights that are due to them uh, because of justice. So he argues in defense of the uh, rights of the American Indians. Um, and then what... Uh, Miguel Romero does in the chapter, which I thought was really informative, 
was he points out that both Las Casas and Sepulveda share the assumption that rationality is equivalent to the use of reason and then trying to figure out who's using it or not. Mm. But uh, Francisco de Vitoria, who's also another Spanish person, disagrees with both of them because he thinks being rational is not identical to the use of reason. And then he goes back to t- Aquinas's treatise on human nature and points out that Aquinas distinguishes the basic power from acts that uh, typically follow from it, whether acts are composing, putting concepts together, making judgments, making arguments, and things like that. And so Aquinas distinguishes those two things. And so De Vitoria says, we don't even need to settle the empirical question about whether or not these new be- uh, human beings we've encountered use the reason. Like, that's not even relevant. If they're human, that's good enough. That's it. They don't right. have to okay. prove themselves to us. And so one of the things I find interesting about, right, so going back to the Boethius thing, if you think being rational mm-hmm. means the use of reason, display of reason, successfully are interpreted as using reason, if that's the way you think about rationality, then yeah, I think that that interpretation of Boethius does lead to, uh, does support ableism. Mm-hmm. But the more historically informed understanding um, does not directly support uh, ableism. Now, in the chapter, I do point out ways in which Boethius's definition could be used to support ableism. And so it would go like this. Um, so Boethius gives us his definition, the person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Mm-hmm. But then Boethius also believes that human beings are composites of an immaterial soul and body, right? Immaterial soul and a physical organic body. And so the rational power is grounded in the immaterial soul, not in any of Mm -hmm. the organs. So if you assume that metaphysical picture and the definition of of person, then all human beings uh, would count as a person. But suppose you thought that no. Human beings are not composed of an immaterial soul. Rather, they have no immaterial parts, no immaterial properties, or fully physical beings. If that's your metaphysical account of human beings, and if rational power is grounded in some parts of your brain, and if you're missing those parts of your brain, then you literally wouldn't have rational power. So if we go with Boethius' definition, then that human being wouldn't be a person because they're missing the relevant parts of the brain. Right. So. So it has to be, we have to think of it in terms of Boethius' definition plus a metaphysical conception of the entities in question. Here we're thinking about human beings. So depending on your metaphysical framework you bring to Boethius' definition, it can be either used to support ableism or, uh, or not. So I think Boethius' definition is both consistent with ableism and consistent with anti-ableism. See, because that was the like, really interesting twist of my mind, because uh, when I was reading through the chapters, expecting the sort of move of like, well, look, you know, you just have the the rational power. That's all you need. How much you exercise it meh, doesn't matter. You've got it. You're, you're a person. Uh, but then when you, when you made this move of like, well, say you're not like a, a dualist of some sort, you are like, you know, a materialist about human persons. Ooh, okay. Well then you're going to have this problem. You could get back to ableism. And that was something I did not expect, but all the more reason for people to want to go and buy this book and, and check it out because I, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. Um, but Scott, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk about these things. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on the Holy Spirit, Atonement, and so much more. <laughs>